Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It has been a heck of a start to football season. If you want to bet money lines, overs, unders, parlays, props, and more, then you should head over to betonline.ag. Use our promo code BLEAV50. That's B L E A V 50 to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is a fantabulous NFL Monday once again, week three in the books. Hope y'all had a fun week. We're going to talk football. I, I know I say I usually try and only cover like the best of the best games this week, but I actually have thoughts about most of the football games that happened this week, even if they're brief, like just mentioning the fact that the Las Vegas Raiders offense looks absolutely constipated. Even though they moved the ball, it just felt like it took three plays for them to get 11 yards, and there were just so many incomplete passes at the end, and they had so many chances to go down and drive on Tennessee it's just the Raiders offense is just confounding to me. But even if it's small comments like that, I do have comments about most of the games this week. Remember, every NFL Monday is another NFL Monday in which we are one week closer to Matt Rule being fired, even though the Panthers won this week. And we are one week closer to Mike Tomlin coming to his senses and starting Kenny Pickett over Mitchell Trubisky. Every NFL Monday, we get one week closer to the inevitable firing of Matt Rule and start of Kenny Pickett. in a row two weeks in a row we get to start off with the miami dolphins fight song that is a remake by t-pain of the 1970 dolphins theme song t-pain made that in 2007 and in the 15 years since the miami dolphins have not won a playoff game and that might be changing this year if i were someone who would overreact to the first three weeks of the season which i'm not miami beat the buffalo bills Miami beat the Baltimore Ravens. Finger gun your way to 3-0. and Tua Tungavailoa is no longer a QB purgatory guy, right? Right? Woo! Miami Dolphins. 
Stand up, Dolphins, the greatest football team. Um, yeah, Miami beat Buffalo this week. So the Buffalo and Kansas City are the two games I'm just going to kind of combine together. Because like the storylines for Buffalo and Kansas City are just eerily similar at this point. Obviously, both of them have incredible quarterbacks. And Buffalo has this awesome defense, but now five players who would normally be starters on that defense were out, including their entire secondary. Micah Hyde, done for season. Tredavious White, not playing yet. They started four players in the secondary who had a combined three starts, which is basically the same shit we were talking about last week with Baltimore. Baltimore had their fourth string and fifth string corners playing. They got Marlon Humphrey and Marcus Peters back this week, but like Baltimore had nobody against the Dolphins. Buffalo had none of their top corners against the Dolphins, and Miami had an incredible game offensively. And it wasn't even, I mean, it's weird because Miami didn't put up very many yards in the game. Tua was under 200 for the game. Their rushing attack is still shitty. I mean, they had two touchdowns this week, but they came from Chase Edmonds, who had six total carries in the game. So Miami just has no confidence in their running game. And uh, I said at the start of the season, I don't think this running game is any good. Just people were betting on Mike McDaniel, who again, the Dolphins didn't want him. They wanted Sean Payton, then they wanted Brian Dayball, then they settled on Mike McDaniel. But everyone was betting on Niners' zone running scheme will make Chase Edmonds and Raheem Mostert great. And uh, in that game, those two had to combine 14 carries for 35 yards. And the Dolphins have not averaged more than four yards a carry as a team in any of the three wins to start the season. Um, but Miami wins because of special teams' mistakes for the Buffalo Bills. Like, game script-wise, Buffalo wins that game 7 out of 10 times. If you're following that game script, so basically if if you're circling back in the game here, remember uh, Tyler Bass misses the field goal that would have put, in the fourth quarter, would have put Buffalo up 20-14. to It was a 42-yard kick. He nubbed it. Uh, It just barely squeaked out to the left. If that kick goes in which it goes in 70% of the time, then Buffalo's up 20-14, to kicking the ball back to Miami. Instead, Miami gets the ball, and they immediately complete a, I believe it was a 30-yard completion to Jalen Waddell. Then they take a sack, and I think there might have been a penalty in there, and they set up for 3rd and 22, and in a game where one Tua Tungavailoa didn't really throw the ball that much because Miami was never on the field and Tua left with a backslash concussion injury that's now being investigated by the NFL union heads I'm going to talk more about that in the second segment I have because Jesus Christ Justin Herbert but I'll talk more about Tua and the concussion protocol stuff and you know confusion about whether his back locked up and that was why we saw the video of Tua stumbling off the field and then still passed the concussion protocol, came back, and was able to make another signature play where he throws a 45-yard pass right into Jalen Waddell's arms. Uh, If you follow Mina Kimes on Twitter, she posted the, um, basically the all 22, but like all the players are dots on the field of the script, like the, um, I think it's the Amazon AWS, like tracking players on the field. And it just makes them all dots with numbers and Tua with two high safeties. I mean, this is partially McDaniel, but partially Tua where 
you have two high safeties on defense. You're taking away the deep ball, and the first safety on the left, I, I can't remember who it is because Poyer was on um, Jordan Poyer was on Waddle, and the second safety who was replacing Micah Hyde draws to Tyreek Hill, draws to Tyreek Hill just enough to where Tua throws it to Waddle straight down the middle and the safety breaks back. And if you watch that play again, like with one and a half yards of separation from the second safety and the first safety, puts it right on Jalen Waddle for first and goal. And then the running back gets to score the touchdown and yay, Dolphins can run the football for 35 total yards. And, uh, you know, that play was just a perfect bomb to Waddle. Uh, I mean, Terry Kill and Tua draw the safety off and then boom, Waddle with a yard and a half separation. It was a beautiful play by by Tua Tungavailoa. Just fantastic play. I know last week he had the underthrown touchdown by eight yards, and then he had the really good play to Terry Kill last week. This was like picturesque, one of the best throws of the week. Tua hitting Jalen Waddle on third and 23 that then gives the Dolphins a 21-17 lead, which remember the Dolphins, even if they score that, but they would have started about, what would it have been, 7 to 12 yards backwards. Even if they score that, now it's 21 to 20, and Buffalo goes right down the field with five minutes left, kill all the clock, and they have to go for it on fourth down, which by the way, goal line defense for the Dolphins... Great job. Great job goal line defense for the Miami Dolphins today. But even with how great it should have been, if Buffalo if Buffalo gets that kick to go in and gets their scripting right where uh, Stephon Diggs doesn't leave with a cramp and the uh, play to McKenzie doesn't get called back, or at the end of the first half where uh, Josh Allen bobbles the spike that would have also led to a field goal, that took three points off the board. Bass just straight missed that one. And then because of that, they were down four in the last two minutes of the game and they had to go for it on fourth and goal at the two which led to Josh Allen straight under throwing Isaiah McKenzie in the end zone and uh, instead Buffalo leaves if you if you count that as a field goal that they had to go for that's nine points left on the field for Buffalo just on special teams alone and that nine point difference means Buffalo's up big and maybe Tua has to run a two-minute drill at the end of the game Instead of getting an all-time like punt that hits off the butt of a teammate, perfectly captured with someone who had a like thousand picture a second camera that nailed the moment when uh, was it Tommy Morstead punted the ball off the butt of a uh, Miami Dolphins player, which prompted Tyreek Hill to have the quote after the game quote I've never seen a butt punt. But next time, Sherfield's going to catch it with his butt cheeks because he's got strong butt cheeks. Me and uh, our buddy Cam talked about this last Tuesday. I can't believe Terry Hill doesn't have any sort of like viral comment that shows up every now and again. I, j- I just can't believe that he didn't have a he didn't have a single viral moment in his seven years with the Chiefs. Just just never happened. But uh, yeah, instead of having a butt punt. Perhaps the Dolphins are down six and Tua has to lead a game winning drive in the quote unquote Tua minute drill. But I'm and so instead, you know, the, the Buffalo Bills end up losing on that play. They get the ball back. Uh, they run out of clock at the end of the game because the Dolphins pressured well. And 
Uh, basically, the takeaway from that is Buffalo, nine points left on the field from special teams. Kansas City Chiefs, 13 points left on the field from special teams in that game. They had the fake punt because their kicker was hurt and they had no confidence in Amendola. Just missed a 30, was it a 37 yarder in a dome? Just straight missed it against the Colts. That's six right there. Muff punt by Sky Moore. Uh, choosing to play conservative at the half, which led to to Patrick Mahomes yelling at him on the sidelines. And then Patrick Mahomes giving the nothing quarterback answer afterwards about Eric Bieniemy just running 40 seconds off the clock to end the half because the chiefs got it to start the second half. 13 points at least left on the field for Kansas City. That's the reason the Colts win. Colts had no business winning that game. 7 out of 10 times, Buffalo's going to beat Miami. 8 out of 10 times, Kansas City's going to beat the Colts with the same game script that played out. It just was a fluky type of situation. And the reason I lumped Buffalo and Kansas City together, the first part was talking about those end-of-game situations where they special teams is the reason they lose those games, and those are things that... Come the playoffs, sure, they could lose on a special teams play. Sure, they could leave 13 points on the board. It's less likely to happen than, say, their team just not being talented enough to compete in the playoffs or Buffalo and Kansas City just being totally overwhelming to start the season. Sure, totally possible. Less likely, that, more likely that these were just anomaly games that are going to happen over a long season. The second reason I wanted to combine those two together is Man, oh man, the Buffalo Bills and Kansas City Chiefs cannot run the football. Just straight up cannot run the football. In the first half of that Bills and Dolphins game, the Buffalo Bills had 180 passing yards and 8 rushing yards. Had 8 rushing yards early on in the game. And remember, I keep saying all year with the Buffalo Bills, the reason to watch them is because they're super fun. And God fucking damn it was that Bills-Dolphins game fun to watch. Just all of it was fun to watch, even though Buffalo deserved to win that game. Just so much fun to watch. And they their entire purpose of the regular season for them is to get healthy for the playoffs, which is already taking a big L because Micah Hyde is done for the season and five of their defensive starters were out this week. And in the meantime, they could learn how to run the football, but it's, it's just baffled me for four years how fun this Buffalo offense is. And for the past three years, how Josh Allen has been an MVP elite quarterback. And they just have had the worst running game of any good team in the NFL. Obviously, the Rams were worse than them last year, but I'm talking about for like an extended period of time, just awful at running the football. And... The Miami Dolphins were also terrible at running the football, but Buffalo dominated time of possession because in the second half, they just started using screen plays as the running game, and on the drive that ended up missing the field goal, I believe it was Zach Moss had a 41-yard run mixed in there, and that's going to make the rushing stats look better for Buffalo, but when I say Buffalo cannot run the football, it means possess the football for an extended period of time and convert it into points. And where Kansas City has improvised from not being able to run the football is what we saw in the Cardinals game. 
Kansas City, uh, Mahomes had 15 consecutive completions, 14 of which were under 10 to 15 yards. The adaptation for Kansas City is to work the short field like the running game, screen plays to the running back, uh, getting Juju Smith-Schuster out on screens, drag routes, which they used to do with Tyreek Hill. Now they run uh, with a combination of Juju and McCole Hardman. That's the way that Kansas City has adapted to being unable to run the football. Buffalo hasn't really found a perfect adaptation. Their offense just succeeds without being able to run it. And of course, you know, you don't need to run the football when you're putting up five touchdowns in the first half. Like Buffalo can do that. Kansas City can do that. Like that, it's not a problem then. It's a problem when it's a game like this against Miami where your offense isn't clicking the way that you hoped it would click. Um, you're on the field for extended periods of time. It's 95 degrees on the field. And the Miami Stadium has this interesting thing where there's only shade on the home sidelines. I saw people were complaining about that being an OSHA violation during the game. And it's games like that that running the ball is effective. And Buffalo had an eight and a half minute field goal drive during the third quarter. They had a healthy split of run and uh, pass. Like I said, the James Cook, I'm sorry, not James Cook, the, the Zach Moss 41 yard run was mixed in there as well. And Buffalo was able to kill clock with screen passes to the running back and one big running play. And that was the best their running game has looked all season. At the end of last year in December, they tried to figure out running the football. Then they got to the playoffs and said, fuck it, Josh Allen is our number one running back. And when you get to the playoffs, you can do that again. You just can't let Josh Allen take all the big hits because remember, Buffalo's entire goal is to maintain health and they're already not doing great in that respect. So the, the long-term goal is to get everyone healthy for the playoffs in January. Kansas City had this same problem against the Colts. And it's the reason that even though they left 13 points on the board, muffed a punt, missed, two, missed a field goal, and then called a fake field goal for just no fucking reason in the middle of the game, Kansas City leaving 13 points on the field, still should have won that game. Even with 24 seconds in desperation time, they got the ball within five yards of field goal range before the the pass from Mahomes was behind Juju Smith-Schuster, which Mahomes and Tom Brady kind of live in this same respect where we just anticipate they're going to go down and win every time, like we thought with Tom Brady against the Packers. It's just that they do it more often than everyone else that we just kind of like backlog the misses in our head. I remember last year, I think it was against, uh, it was one of those bad teams last year. I think it was Washington maybe where Mahomes threw a pick in the two minute drill and they ended up losing. Maybe it was, maybe it was Philly. I can't remember who it was last year, but they, they threw a pick in a two minute drill and everyone was like, Oh, watch out for Mahomes. And, and Today, this was on Mahomes. Like the the throw behind Juju at the end was an interception. But again, even when they the special team screws up for thirteen points, they still almost like pull one out of their ass and force overtime against the Colts. And I just watched that game, and I feel like Buffalo and Kansas City are following the same plane because we know their offenses are totally overwhelming. They're they're very minimal differences uh, from last year over to this year, and. Both teams are struggling to run the football. Both teams have totally overwhelming offenses, and the regular season exists 
for both of them to to find good health, and I'm watching both these games, and they're following incredibly similar game scripts, which is not to say the Dolphins, I mean, we, we did the analysis of Tua earlier on, an analysis of the Dolphins' defense, like, they were very, very good as well. The Colts took advantage of the offer, even though the Colts fucked up a couple times, the Colts took advantage of some of the opportunities that helped explain why they, they ended up winning that game when they probably lose that game eight out of 10 times. And the uh, Miami Dolphins lose that game to the Bills uh, seven out of every 10 times. Broken Matthew Stafford had his best game of the season. Shout out to Broken Matthew Stafford for uh, having one awesome play in there. I think it was like third and 11 where he like dodges a sack and then fires a 12-yard completion to, I think it was Skoronik, who was the uh, leading receiver for the Los Angeles Rams. Shout out leading receiver Ben Skronik for Skronik, Skronik, Skronik. Scroronic, Ben Scroronic, the leading receiver for the Los Angeles Rams, or uh, as I like to call him, generic number 88. I know his number is 18, but he just feels like a generic number 88. And uh, he's now like the number two receiver on the Los Angeles Rams because uh, where's Allen Robinson? Nobody knows. Matthew Stafford and the Rams should have won that game by more than eight points. They just, you know, Cam Akers fumbled at the goal line again in what's becoming an annual tradition of Cam Akers giving seven points back for the Los Angeles Rams because the the Rams running game is still terrible. We said it last week. Trade for Derrick Henry. F them picks. Trade for Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry had a good game today for the Titans. Uh, Following up on something I said at the very beginning of the show, one more joke. Do you know how constipated your offense has to be? Las Vegas to where I'm watching the Titans play offense and I'm watching Ryan Tannehill run an offense and your team looks way more constipated than Ryan Tannehill and again this is we're talking about 2022 Tannehill not 2019 not 2020 Tannehill 2022 Tannehill which is just like 2018 Tannehill just looking constipated as all get out uh, for the Las Vegas Raiders because the Titans were actually able to move the ball on your terrible secondary Back to the Rams, which is back to the broader topic I wanted to talk about. Um, y'all remember, uh, I want to say it was back in late July, 
when we did a Monday podcast where I had done a movie review on the movie Nope, which is a really good movie. Again, you should check it out. It's probably out on, uh, I mean, I don't think Blu-rays are a thing anymore, but it's out on wherever you get movies that are hard copies now. Um, It's probably not in theaters anymore. But one of the things that we talked about on that show was that uh, documentary that Zach Kiefer of The Athletic did on Andrew Luck. And he answered for me something that I was always fascinating because I think Andrew Luck is the most fascinating athlete I've ever encountered or covered. I'm so fascinated by Andrew Luck because he basically was Dan Marino levels good for the first seven years of his career and then just disappeared from the... Had the most shocking retirement of my lifetime. Like Barry Sanders up there, like my lifetime, 21 years, most shocking retirement of any of our lifetime and then just disappeared from the face of the earth. This guy better than Dan Marino, his or as good as Dan Marino, his first six, seven years in the league, retires and just disappears. And that documentary was really interesting because it opened my idea to someone who I find immensely fascinating, but it also explained to me why Andrew Luck spent two full years out with an injury. And the way they described it is that Andrew Luck was so focused on, I'm going to play through pain, I'm going to play through pain. Not only do I play through pain, I love the physical aspects of football. And when Andrew Luck had the the big injury to his shoulder and he was peeing blood for a month, Andrew Luck kept fighting through the shoulder injury, and he played through an entire season with a shoulder injury, had to have surgery, missed an entire season with shoulder surgery. It looked like he might miss another season with shoulder surgery because every time his shoulder was recovering, he would just keep pressing on the gas in order to get back healthy, and it took him going to see a psychologist and a trainer all in one in order to correct his arm and his injuries. And so in 2019, when he injured his calf during the preseason, that was just it for him. He wasn't going to go through rehab. He wasn't going to work through that anymore. He would rather just walk away than go back to the dark, depressing place that he was in during his two years out of football. And it revealed to me, there was a great phrase in there that's like part of it was the injury itself and a bigger part of it was football culture that play that encouraged playing through the pain and it was when Andrew Luck suffered an injury that he lost his as they described it football virginity where he had a major injury and that's when it sapped the love and joy that Andrew Luck had for football away from him and I've heard stories about that all over the place with people who after their careers suffer from immense pain from their playing careers. This is the whole point of the concussion lawsuit in the NFL and, uh, you know, those welfare law, or I'm sorry, those uh, defrauding the welfare program for retired players. All of this is about like money that belongs to NFL players because we did not understand the science or at the very least were negligible to the science that existed around their post NFL injuries. And football culture is all about playing through pain, playing through injury. Tom Brady played an entire seat. The, the book by, um, God, the Patriots book by Seth Wickersham detailed how during one of Tom Brady's playoff runs, his ankle was swollen entirely red and purple and he played the last 
eight weeks of the season through that because that was football culture. And I talked about this after the first game of the season with Stafford, which leads me into Justin Herbert. What the fuck? Justin Herbert. Seriously, dude. Like, he's playing with rib cartilage injuries that take weeks, if not months, to recover from. And he was going to take, like, a pain-numbing injection in his chest... Which was, I think, a bigger story just because it was the doctor who injected Tyrod Taylor. Which, by the way, that's some fucking Chargers shit right there. The Chargers are the team that is so notoriously cheap that they will have a malpractice lawsuit from Tyrod Taylor. And then they will let that same doctor inject Justin Herbert's chest because the Chargers are cheap as shit. I know that that's lacking nuance. I know that's lacking a deeper conversation. I just want to shit on the Chargers. Let me be emotional. I'm a five-year recovering Chargers fan. This is part of my recovery process and continuing to be a sober Charger fan. Well, former Charger fan. A, A sober person when it comes to being a recovering Chargers fan and a recovering addict to being a Chargers fan and that narcotic of rooting for terrible football. I just want to hate on the Chargers. They're cheap as shit. Anyways, Justin Herbert. Seriously, dude, like, it's okay. The Chargers got their ass whooped by the Jaguars, which, by the way, we're not probably later on this week going to do an in-depth Trevor Lawrence analysis. I know I promise stuff and sometimes don't deliver on it because we have fun guests on and we just do, like, jazz hands and fun jokes. But, like, I want to do an in-depth analysis on Trevor Lawrence because last week, Leading passer in the NFL on short to intermediate throws. I mean, this week he had a near-perfect passer rating in the first half, and I think Trevor Lawrence ended the game with a higher passer rating than, like, Josh Allen and Aaron Rodgers, which Aaron Rodgers had an exactly perfect passer rating in the first half against Tampa Bay. So just a a ridiculously good performance, 119.5 passer rating from one Trevor Lawrence. But like this was about Justin Herbert, and I was amazed that Herbert was playing through the injury and having basically a fractured rib and injured cartilage, and it kept reminding me of that phrase from Andrew Luck in the documentary and thinking about what football culture does to those bodies when you play through pain. We talked about this last week with Jameis Winston. Like Jameis Winston had four fractured vertebrae in his back, which makes me watch New Orleans put up zero points against I know they missed two field goals, but like they put up zero points against Carolina and I'm like, I don't know how to do the analysis of the Saints offense. How am I I came into the season saying no idea what to expect from the Saints offense. Don't know how Michael Thomas will come back after two years of injuries. And, you know, one year he played through a torn, I mean, sorry, a broken leg, broke his leg week one of the season, played through that season, and then, like Andrew Luck, missed an entire season to where now Michael Thomas is two years removed from being the, or I guess three years removed from being the all-time receptions leader, and he just, like, spent two years being broken, and it's impossible to come back from that and be as good as you were even if Drew Brees and Sean Payton are both gone, like it's just an impossible standard. And so I'm watching Michael Thomas and Chris Olave and Jarvis Landry and Alvin Kamara coming back. And I'm just like, I don't know how to evaluate the Saints offense. Now you add Jameis has four fractures in his back. 
Alvin Kamara missed a game last week and clearly wasn't right this week. How am I supposed to evaluate the Saints offense when I already had no idea coming into the season what they were? And and I'm watching Justin Herbert do this and that Andrew Luck phrase keeps ringing in my head where I'm like, just it's okay to sit. I'm watching Stafford play and obviously Stafford played pretty good against the the Cardinals, but they can't open the full playbook to Stafford cuz he's just broken. And he's I just don't know how to do the analysis like this because football culture is insane. And I don't know how to talk about this because I don't understand the football like Xs and Os and the culture and locker room stuff because I've never played football and it's a cultural thing that's been written about in books and has been talked about on podcasts and radio shows and television and even former players and current players have talked about football culture and the pain that's been around this. And it's just, I don't know exactly what to do with that analysis because like the the entire Los Angeles Chargers team was hurt. Keenan Allen was out. Corey Lindsley was out. JC Jackson was out and Rashawn Slater left and didn't return in the game. So like the entire reason the Chargers are the Chargers and like have built something stable around Justin Herbert is those four players. And if all four of them are out, by the way, Joey Bosa also got hurt in that game in the first quarter. I don't actually know if Bosa came back into the game, but he was looking real bad early on in the game. And I'm watching that. I'm like, okay, literally the six best players on the Chargers are all hurt. And they're all playing through injury, and I'm hearing that like schmucks on CBS Sports Radio, because you know I happen to listen to, I happen to work at a radio station, so it's on sometimes. And I'm listening to CBS Sports Radio, and they're talking about like Justin Herbert is an elite because he hasn't made a playoff run. When like all of the numbers suggest Justin Herbert is, if not elite, in that same class as Dak Prescott and Joe Burrow, right on the precipice of being elite. And I just looking at it, I'm like. How are we supposed to do fair analysis about this when football culture is insane and we're conditioned to be in this place? And I'm watching Justin Herbert, clearly who needs four weeks off, but the Chargers can't afford him to be gone for four weeks. And he's just going to play through injury and and do short-term damage, short-term damage, short-term damage, because that's what the culture is. And Justin Herbert's the guy who... You know, I, it reminds me, I've talked about this before, about playing in... Uh, I talked about this with Stafford in, in week one, about how men during World War II who were told they couldn't enlist in the military were suffering higher rates of depression, alcoholism, suicidal attempts, and that's because the culture was, if I can't serve and I can't put my life on the line, then there is no purpose. There is this shame, guilt, intense emotional pain that existed because that's what the culture was in the 1940s in the United States, which is if I can't be of service, giving my life on the, putting my life on the line to serve for a greater cause, in this case being the United States in the, the World War II, like if that's not the greater cause, then they're like that's the only thing that matters and i feel like football culture reflects that so much and i don't know if that goes back to like the oldest days of football like in the way that we talk about it or if it's something that's a new development because obviously people have been playing through injuries forever and it's persisted because that's the culture and it's changed a little bit like we're like jarred when Tua Tungavailoa comes in from an injury and doctors 
still have a conflict of interest. And and after reporting on that Kawhi Leonard story with the Spurs Dynasty documentary, like bipartisan doctors, having a team doctor and a player doctor who's not being paid by the team would be a great way to uh, better help athletes not go beyond their limits medically and avoid like major injury removing the conflict of interest within medical practices of teams would make a difference there but at a certain point like it takes small changes to develop the culture over generations and Justin Herbert's one of the newer guys like he was drafted eight years after Andrew Luck and still has that same fighting acumen Jameis Winston was 2015 and he's playing through four fractures in his back and Alvin Kamara's playing through injury and now Justin Herbert and Tua Tungavailoa, who are the 2020 draft, are the latest examples of this football culture perpetuating over generations, which I think is cause for concern. I'm not going to say it's like an abject problem. I just feel like there's a cause for concern when there isn't some sort of protection for these athletes like Justin Herbert, sometimes from themselves in that case. Like medical science has gotten to a point where like these are decisions that should be taken out of the hand of the employer and the team especially when we have better scientific evidence around the long-term effects of injuries and even if we want to go uh, more instead of scientific if we want to go more of an antidotal case Luke Keekley retired at 30 and Andrew Luck retired at 29 because of the damage to their bodies from pushing through injuries as part of football culture, in no small part football culture, and the lack of medical supervision in between certain steps. And it's something that I feel like should change. It's going to take a long time to change. We just aren't working to adjust the way we talk about football culture. And uh, I'm going to transition here over to talking about Mac Jones, but Mac Jones had an injury at the end of his game as well, where he's like, running off the field limping on one leg because he has like ligament damage in his ankle and it's like this is over the top in a way that I feel like a lot of careers could be sustained and improved and football as a sport could grow and everyone could be healthier if we adopted some different practices and worked to adjust the culture a little bit more than what we're already doing because the change is happening but it's not happening in a way where it feels like we can see meaningful difference unless we look back 15 years or look back 10 years because we could look at what's happening with Andrew Luck down to Jameis Winston down to Justin Herbert and Tua and Mac Jones and say this is perpetuated across generations where people within football culture, play through pain and there is no secondary option regardless of the long-term consequences and the detriment to their bodies. And creating stronger stopgaps within medical practices feels like a scientific first step, or at least a scientific step to help improve and change the culture around football players putting everything on the line in those moments it doesn't have to be as intense and grueling as we see it be today because football is a unique sport where that is the case now football is obviously a unique sport for a lot of different reasons 
I just don't see any examples that closely reflect that except for like playoffs in basketball where Kevin Durant is tearing his Achilles or Kevon Looney breaks his collarbone and they're like, well, he can't hurt it anymore, so might as well let him play. Like I did, at a certain point, there's like medical practices that I feel like could improve the health and well-being of people and take steps to like, I, I know football's crazy and long seasons and stuff like that, like work to improve football culture just a little bit. All right, shout out to the 2-1 Chicago Bears. I know we're playing the Bears Still Suck song, but uh, I do want to shower the praises of the 2-1 Chicago Bears by talking about how, hey, they won that game at the end on a weird play, and uh, they give no protection to Justin Fields, and they will uh, hurt the developmental stages of his NFL career, and uh, I still have no evidence to determine either way whether Justin Fields is a good quarterback. I said last year when... uh, they were getting red. I believe it was after the Steelers game on Monday Night Football where we put a 10-month embargo on the Bears because we knew Allen Robinson was going to leave. They were going to replace him with a cheaper option, which I think ended up being Byron Pringle. They were going to fire Nagy, replace him with a new coach, which ended up being Eberflus. And we were going to have no evidence either way to determine whether Justin Fields was a better quarterback which is why we did not talk about the Chicago Bears for 10 months, came back this year, three games in, Bears are 2-1, and one, and I have no idea, no more, no more or less evidence to determine whether Justin Fields uh, is a great quarterback or not. And I know it's only three games, which I know is only 12 games of Justin Fields' career, but uh, just wanted to update. Still don't know about Justin Fields. You know what I do know? Trevor Lawrence is fantastic. And you know what I do know also is that there are a couple quarterbacks that uh, are showing their signs of not being starting caliber NFL quarterbacks. And last year, Walter Mitchell and I had this conversation about Taylor Heineke and Colt McCoy, where Heineke was starting for Washington and was very clearly not a starting quarterback in the NFL. And same goes for Colt McCoy, who had this amazing game in relief for the Cardinals and went 2-1 and one filling in for an injured Kyler Murray. And then Colt McCoy ended up having a shit game against the Carolina Panthers where his numbers were just awful. And Taylor Heineke, you knew that he wasn't a starting caliber quarterback in the NFL because you'd watch. And he played really well. Like, he had an 80% completion percentage against the Bucks. Uh, He had a big game against, I want to say it was the Giants. Don't quote me on that, but there was another big game last year from Heineke. And then there was a game where he just had three interceptions, including a pick six, and his passer rating was like 20. 
And that's a moment where it's like, okay, that's when the starting quarterbacks. Because the thing I learned like four years, or when we first started doing this podcast in 2019, I think it still stands, was when uh, Sam Darnold got mono for the Jets. And I believe it was James Falk or Luke Falk who came in to replace Sam Darnold. And he went 15 for 20 for 130 yards on a Monday night football game. And that made me realize that like in a basic NFL offense with some base level of stability, any of these quarterbacks can go 15 for 20 for 100 yards and just game manage their way, punt the ball every time, but they're going to have a high completion percentage because they don't trust them to throw the ball more than 10 yards down the field. And then you're going to have games where they just shit the bed just like don't even look competent out there and that's the difference between a starting caliber quarterback and a backup caliber quarterback and I'm watching this with Davis Mills right now because Davis Mills you may remember in week one when they were going into the two-minute drill against Indianapolis they had a third down and one at the Colts 47 yard line in overtime tie game And I said out loud, watching this on the red zone, Texans aren't going to get it. Bunch formation, handoff Rex Burkhead, negative two yards, punt to the Colts, game ends in a tie. I just felt so sad because there was no chance the Texans were going to get that. And then last week against the Seahawks, they had a seven-point deficit where they'd only scored nine points in the game, hadn't scored a touchdown the entire game. They're down seven to the Seahawks, who, again, Russell Wilson and Nathaniel Hackett have been booed at this point by the home fans at the home opener. And the Texans have Kirk Cousins purgatory, because, again, Davis Mills got the Kirk Cousins purgatory award, and he went negative one-yard completion, incomplete, incomplete, fourth down and 11, incomplete, game over and then this week in a 2020 game with a minute to play Davis Mills has a pass tipped at the line of scrimmage intercepted by Roquan Smith instead of going to overtime Texans lose after the drive before that they kicked a field goal when they had I believe first and goal three times I might be thinking of a different drive exactly, but I'm going to say that one of the drives they had first and goal and couldn't get in on three consecutive plays. And because of that, it was 2020 in the first place. And I'm watching that and I'm like, that's why Davis Mills is going to be replaced. And I don't think the Texans may win a game uh, the rest of the season. I think the Texans will be a team that is drafting number one in the NFL draft. And if not number one, number two. Like I Texans right now are 0-2-1, and I think they might not win a game the rest of the season. I know they play an easy schedule, and the AFC South is trash and all of that stuff, but I don't think the Texans will win another game the rest of the year. And if they do, it'll be one or two that end up being fluke victories, and they'll, fin- they'll, they'll finish with the second pick in the draft instead of the first pick in the draft. And Davis Mills is a transition to another quarterback because— He just does dumb shit. Davis Mills in two-minute drills this season is 0 for 8 with that... I'm sorry, he's 1 for 8 passing in two-minute drills. He's 1 for 8 with that negative one-yard completion that happened in the Broncos game and the interception that goes from being an overtime game to a loss immediately against the Chicago Bears. I know it was tipped. I know it wasn't his fault, but 1 for 8 for negative one yards of offense 
in the two-minute drill, Davis Mills. And this happened with Davis Mills, and this happened with Mac Jones against Baltimore. And this are different levels. Like, Mac Jones is a decent NFL quarterback. Davis Mills, if he were on the Patriots, would probably look something like Mac Jones. Mac Jones looks pretty good at times. Mac Jones had an amazing game with Devontae Parker, including one pass that was just like picture perfect, where I'm like, really good job. And then Mac Jones just does dumb shit. Like they get the fumble by Bateman, move right down the field with the running game and a big play to um, Devontae Parker. And on third down, all the Ravens have to do is just blitz five. Mac Jones is going to throw one up on third down, and it's going to get like center field intercepted by Marlon Humphrey when they were, when they were at the 15-yard line. And there was a receiver in the area. It's just Marlon Humphrey had to like box him out and make an easy interception. And there was a throw where Mac Jones just went right in the middle of the field and got picked off by the linebacker. And it's just one of those things where I'm like, Yes, this was the thing that happened with Josh Allen when he first started with Buffalo, but I look at Mac Jones and I look at Davis Mills and I look at those guys that we know are backup quarterbacks in the NFL like Trubisky and I'm just like, oh, this is blah. Because you can game manage your way to good to like a decent stat line where like Mitchell Trubisky put up, what was it, 180 yards and the Steelers scored six points on offense. And then they had a drive down the field and then kicked a field goal against, I think it was Cleveland. I didn't watch a single minute of that game on Thursday. So, like, sorry if I got that one wrong. But, like, I'm thinking back to the Bengals game. I'm thinking back to the parts of the Patriots game that I saw, which wasn't much. And then everyone was, like, complaining on Twitter that the Steelers kicked a field goal at the end. But they only had, like, 14 points up to that point. So, like, there isn't anything special there. And the offense just has a lot of punts. Washington did this shit also on Sunday, but I don't think I think this is the the reason why Carson Wentz isn't the elite quarterback I thought he was going to be in 2020 is because the Carson Wentz experience involves being an elite quarterback while simultaneously doing dumb shit that a backup does. It's a really weird combination for Carson Wentz. And like coachability is something that people complain about with Carson Wentz. We didn't really see the dumb shit in his first few years in the NFL. This feels like a new development in part because of the injuries and in part because Carson Wentz had the greatest offensive line in the history of the NFL, strong stability with that Eagles team that went on to win the Super Bowl and immediately got dismantled within two years. And Carson Wentz has been in the rotating panel of Colts and Washington now where he looks like the same quarterback every year for the last three years when he's played on bad teams. And it's been the roller coaster Carson Wentz experience that we watch with Davis Mills and we're watching with Mac Jones at the same time. But at least with Carson Wentz, we see it for like more sustained periods of time. Whereas Mac Jones and Davis Mills, we don't really get the same glimpses of success. Mac Jones is a different case than, than even Davis Mills himself. I just, we see the dumb shit. And it's the thing that ends up, I mean, it's dumb shit from our vantage point. It's just like we don't see the great quarterbacks who add value doing that. And it's why the Texans will be looking for a new quarterback. It's why the Washington racial slurs will be looking for a new quarterback. It's why the Patriots will now be without Mac Jones and it's going to hurt. But, you know, Bailey Zappi is going to go in and uh, Patriots fans are not going to see a noticeable difference between Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi. You're still going to have the interceptions. 
you're still going to have a couple of plays that wow you. You're not going to watch a noticeable difference there. And also when it comes to Washington, we mentioned Heineke earlier. It's the reason that Washington replaces Heineke with Wentz and their win total is not going to change. Obviously, there are other factors at play. Just Wentz, Heineke to Wentz adds no value to Washington. Wentz is undoubtedly a better quarterback than Heineke most of the time. It just doesn't add any value in the win column. Just as the difference between Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi will not change the outcome of the Patriots' season. And if we had a theoretical quarterback switch from Davis Mills to motherfucking Jeff Driscoll or whoever the backup is on the Texans, you're not going to see any difference. Because if Davis Mills plays for the Texans, they might not win a game the rest of the season. And if Jeff Driscoll plays for the Texans, they probably won't win a game the rest of the season. Therefore, all of those quarterbacks aren't adding value to their teams, and therefore, all of those teams would be better off looking for alternative options. And if you can't find an alternative, like Washington tried, Washington called up every quarterback in the NFL. They made calls on Patrick Mahomes to Kansas City. They called the Seahawks and offered three firsts for Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson just wouldn't waive his no-trade clause. Like, Washington tried... The best they could do was Wentz, which is better than Heineke and adds no value to your team. The Texans are shooting for a rookie quarterback. The Patriots just got their rookie quarterback in Mac Jones, and it's pretty clear that Mac Jones is a fine quarterback, will not be as good as Derek Carr. All right, everybody, it's time for us to award the Week 3 Philip Rivers Memorial Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award, an honor we track every single week for quarterbacks who find themselves down six with no timeouts, one minute left to play, and 80 yards to go, which is where Philip Rivers spent 15 years of his career. As you heard me say earlier on the show, I am a five-year recovering Chargers fan. And when Philip Rivers retired, Kirk Cousins took the mantle from him. And this week's Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award goes to the man himself, Kirk Cousins. Now, the Detroit Lions messed this one up a little bit because as you may or may not have known from watching either the NFL Red Zone or just highlight packages, the Detroit Lions missed two field goals in this game. Austin Siebert missed a 48-yard field goal and I believe a 42-yard field goal. Is that 42 or 52? But he missed a 48-yarder and another field goal. And had he made one of those two field goals, particularly the second one, because the second one came with a minute and... 24 seconds left to play. If he had made that field goal, the exact conditions for Kirk Cousins' purgatory would have came true. It would have been the Lions up six. The Vikings had no timeouts, one minute to play, and the kickoff would have gone through the end zone, which meant the Vikings would have had to go, you guessed it, 75 yards. And that would have been exactly Kirk Cousins' purgatory. And this is on the Lions. This is not on Kirk Cousins. Lord knows Kirk Cousins tried. The Lions didn't hold up their end of the bargain because by missing that second kick, which at the time was 124 to go, Vikings had used all their timeouts, and the Lions were up by three. If that kick goes in, we get exactly the definition of Kirk Cousins' purgatory. 
Down six points, one minute to play, no timeouts, 80 yards to go. Which it's 80 yards back when Phillip Rivers was playing. Now that the kickoff goes out to the 25, it's 75 yards. But point still stands. It would have been the exact conditions for Kirk Cousins' purgatory. So that one I'm chalking up to the Lions. Vikings actually went down the field and won the game. It was a cool comeback. They were down 10. Lions are holding up their end of the bargain of continuing to just do dumb shit every week. And it was really fun and really cool. And Lord knows Kirk Cousins tried to have a true Kirk Cousins purgatory game. So we're going to award him just because the Lions messed up on the field goal doesn't mean that this wasn't Kirk Cousins purgatory to the max. And again, we say every week, doesn't matter if you win, doesn't matter if you lose. The objective is to be down six, no timeouts, one minute, and needing to go 75 yards to win the game. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Phillip Rivers would win more often than, say, other quarterbacks of lesser stature than Hall of Famer Phillip Rivers. Kirk Cousins tends to win a lot of these games. When he does, his defense then lets him down after, like they almost did with Jared Goff uh, again today. But Vikings end up winning, and Kirk Cousins gets to, once again, reclaim the throne of Kirk Cousins' purgatory, which... Uh, Kirk Cousins hasn't uh, held the title in a little bit. Let's see how long it's been for our friend Kirk Cousins. It has been since week 16 of last year since Kirk Cousins has claimed the Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award title. He has now won the award a record seven times here on the podcast since we've been tracking it starting last season. So in uh, 21 games of football, Kirk Cousins has spent seven games in Kirk Cousins' purgatory, a whopping 33% of the time, one in every three games, Kirk Cousins finds himself down by six points, no timeouts, and needing to drive the length of the field. And, uh, you know, he his, the, the award is named in his honor for such reasons. So this was his third week of the season. It was only a matter of time before we had a Kirk Cousins' purgatory game. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is you may be listening. Leave a five-star review, leave a download, check out our documentary on the San Antonio Spurs, and check out our new podcast with Cordell, well, I'm doing Cordell Stewart's show now, so you should check that out as well. We'll play clips from that as the season rolls along. I appreciate each and every one of you for your continued support. And as always, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.